going to invite you to turn your Bible. Hope that you have one. We like to use it here to the Gospel of Mark. We are on the road with Jesus. We're walking on the road with Jesus. So let me ask you, how are you doing as you walk on the road with Jesus? Is he continually revealing himself to you as you hopefully walk with him day by day, week by week? The reason I bring this up is when you go back to Mark chapter 1, when Jesus called the disciples to follow, it was a command, follow me. But also there is a consistency in that plan. In other words, follow me, but, but don't stop. Continue to walk with me day in and day out. So if I go down this path, maybe a path, an area that you don't like or that you're not familiar with, I want you to hang on there, and I still want you to go down that path with me. Or if we go into territory that's maybe Gentile territory, maybe it's territory that we're not necessarily familiar with, people that we don't necessarily like, what I want you to do is I want you to follow me because that's the whole concept of us to follow Jesus. And, and before I read our text, what I want to remind us is, of is, is this, the reaction of the people from last week. Remember, Jesus healed a deaf and mute man. And in chapter 7, verse 37, the people had an incredible uh, reaction to Jesus. It says this in chapter 7, verse 37, it says this, the people were overwhelmed with amazement. That, I mean, that, that statement in itself is incredible. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And what I'm reminded is this, if that statement is true about Jesus, that Jesus does everything well, no matter where you're at in life, that, that he's going before you. He knows what's going on in your life, and he does everything well. So my responsibility, our responsibility, is to walk with Jesus and to continue to follow him, even in places where we don't necessarily know, because he's going to do everything well. And so what happens, this becomes an issue of what? An issue of trust. Am I going to trust him for the places maybe that I feel uncomfortable with. And I want to keep that in the back of our mind as we go into the next chapter, chapter 8. We're getting ready at the end of chapter 8. We're getting ready for a huge transition. In other words, what's happening is this. The gospel writer, Mark, is leading up to a point of decision. Hello, everyone out there. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? Are you ready to follow him? Continue to follow him? What do you believe about Jesus? He's going to give him a quiz at the end of chapter 8. But as we continue to walk through, we have all of these lessons. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says this. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. Verse 4, his disciples answered, Interesting, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed? Where in anyone? Hmm. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven, they replied. Verse six, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Verse eight. The people ate and were satisfied. What another incredible statement. The people ate and were satisfied. Jesus provides a miracle for these people in the middle of a desert because he has compassion. He sees that they are hungry. If you don't think Jesus cares about you and what's going on in your life, you're missing the story here about who he is and what he's done for us. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketballs of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. 
after he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that in the midst of life we can trust you. Lord, uh, we are living in incredibly uncertain times right now. We're looking out and we're seeing uh, a part of our world at war, religious people at war with one another. And Father, I don't know about the others in this room, but my heart is broken at what I'm seeing. Father, I thank you that in the midst of life we can turn to you, we can trust you in the midst of life. Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would speak to us this morning of the wonder and the beauty and the compassion and the care of Jesus, that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he actually went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin so that we might come and have life and have it to the full. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. God, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, reveal, open our eyes to the wonder and beauty of you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So after I, I read this passage, you might be sitting there like uh, Yogi Bear. Remember, Yogi Bear may have this, the famous statement, oh, it's like deja vu all over again. Well, that's kind of what we have here. It's just like deja vu all over again. This story sounds familiar. And you would be correct because if you remember back in chapter 6, uh, the disciples and the people, they're on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus feeds 5,000 people, not just men, but people, men, women. And children, he fed them all. And now we're kind of on the opposite end. We've, we've moved all the way around, if you will. We've gone on a long journey, and we're in the area of the Decapolis. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going he's to uh, feed 4,000 people. And, and what a lot of commentators like to do is, well, see, Mark just got this goofed up. There's only one feeding, and what you can do is you can go back and look at and, and compare the two feedings, the 5,000 and the 4,000 together, and you can see a lot of similarities, but you can also see a lot of differences. And what tips the case for me is this. If you go back and look in Mark chapter 8, verse 17 and 20, Jesus simply says, there was two feedings. I told you there were two feedings. I'm going to direct your attention back to two feedings. So I take it that there's two feedings, and this is the second of the feedings. And so if there's, there's two feedings, and this is six to eight months later, maybe you're asking, well, why is there a second feeding? What in the world is going on in the life of Jesus, in the life of the disciples? What in the world is going on that they would need to repeat a lesson? And the other thing is, why would Mark need to write it down? Why, why do we have two records? Why do we have two feedings here? What in the world's going on? Let me ask you something. And you guys are much smarter than I am, and I, I get that. But do you ever have to have a lesson repeated to you? Do you always naturally learn something on the first go-through? Some of you do. Man, you guys are rare. I, not me. I, I just never had a chance, an opportunity for you to learn things. I always had to learn things over and over again. Um, when you were a kid, did your mom or dad ever come to you and, and say this? Um, how many times have I told you to clean your room? How many times have I told you to take out the trash? How many times have I told you to do your house? How many, over and over we hear that from our parents. And, and I think the reason is because sometimes we just don't get it. We, we forget the lessons. We forget the lessons in life. There's, there's a song, um, the uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And one of the lines is, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I, I wonder if sometimes we are prone to wander because we are prone to forget what God has done for us. Don't we need lessons repeated? The Apostle Paul believed so. 
If you go book and look at the book of Philippians, he writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing to people he'd been to, to the city he's been to. Notice what he writes. He says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to what? Write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard. Hey, rejoice in the Lord. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down some things again. And by the way, it's a safeguard to your soul, if you will. I'm going to repeat myself. It's okay to repeat ourselves. Now, chapter 4, verse 4, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. We are people who are prone to forget how to rejoice. So in this context, saying, hey, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to say it again, rejoice. I'm going to repeat myself. Why? Because we need to learn lessons at times. We have a tendency to forget, especially when we're going through something new and different in life. Chapter 3, verse 18, Paul wrote this. For as I often told you before, and now say again, even with tears. Paul said, listen, I was with you, I told you before, and now tears are streaming down my face. Some people are going to become enemies of Christ. I told you this, you didn't believe me, but let me tell you again, some people are going to walk away from the faith. Paul had to remind people at Philippi the important lessons of life. Don't we have a tendency to forget? Man, I don't know how I'm going to get enough money for this for this situation that I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my job. I'm coming to, I, I, something else, something new, it, the bigger issue has come into my life, and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And the reason I bring this up, this idea of forgetfulness, is because within a matter of a few days, Jesus is going to pull the disciples away, and he's going to ask them a question about both feedings. Chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is going to ask the disciples these questions. Do you still not see or understand? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Or your heart's heart? In other words, you have seen all of these things about me, but some way your, your hearts are hardened. You, you see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. I just fed thousands of people, and for some reason you don't get or understand who I am and what's going on in life. Didn't you understand about the deaf? Mute? That I just healed? Maybe what Jesus is wanting them to do is learning something a little bit deeper about who he is and that he's not just a miracle worker. So what I want to do is this. I kind of want to walk through the text and ask the question, do, do you understand, do we understand about Jesus' care? Do we understand about Jesus' compassion and contentment? That's kind of where we're going to go this morning if you're looking at an outline. So verse 1, uh, Jesus is in, in the area of the Decapolis, and it says this, During those days another large crowd gathered. When Taylor Swift goes to a venue, large crowds gather, right? Not only on the inside, but on the outside. They gather outside the venues where she sings. Hundreds of them gather to sing and to hear her. And here we are once again in the area of the Sea of Galilee, in the Decapolis, and what we have is large crowds gathering about Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. What we know is that Jesus probably left the Sea of Galilee. He went into the vicinity of Tyre, right? right? We talked about that. And he was, he was confronted by a Syrophoenician woman. This woman, um, she was a Gentile, and she had a need. Her demon-possessed daughter needed to be healed. And Jesus healed this woman in an incredible way. And you need to go back and think, she's a, she's a Gentile, she's a pagan. And what does she want from Jesus? I want scraps from the table. I want a little bit of crumbs of bread. Interesting, what are we going to have? Bread. She wants scraps of bread, if you will. 
And Jesus commends her for her faith. She's a Gentile woman in the area of Tyre. And then he goes up to Sidon and he comes all the way around and he comes into the Decapolis area. The Decapolis area is a, it's 10 cities, Deca, 10 cities. Now we don't know exactly where he's at, but we know that the demoniac, why? He needed to be healed and he was in the area of the Decapolis and he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you can't go with me. I want you to go back and tell your family and tell everyone else how Jesus, how God has had mercy on your soul. And that's what he did. He went back to the area of the Decapolis and he began to tell everybody, listen, I was living in the tombs. They used to buy me. I was by myself. No one could help me. And this guy by the name of Jesus freed me. And obviously, obviously, as the first missionary to the Decapolis, he had a tremendous impact. Because when Jesus comes back to the area, six, seven, eight months later, guess what? People flock to him. And Jesus, once again, displays his care for people. We read this in the parallel version, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew's parallel account says this about what Jesus was doing. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is in a pagan area, most likely a Gentile area. He's healed the, the Syrophoenician woman. He's come all the way back around. He's healed the demoniac, unclean demoniac. And now you have people, what? Praising the Jewish God. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we're getting a picture of Isaiah chapter 35 where he's going to heal the lame, the blind, the sick. He's going to heal that. that. That was a testimony that was true of what the Messiah would come and do. And that's exactly what's happening here in the Decapolis area. The eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, and the mute tongue shout for joy. All of that is a reflection of Isaiah chapter 35 and what the Messiah would do. And that's what Jesus is doing in this area. And so we've got this incredibly large group of people, 4,000 men, and there's going to be women and children in there we're going to see. And Jesus is speaking to them. He's healing them, taking care of them. And no doubt over a period of three days, he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, about the requirements of the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. You're smart. Some of you have families. Okay, there's this guy by the name of Jesus, and he's doing some incredible miracles. And I want you to come out to the world. I want you to come out to this remote area. Grab your wife, grab your kids. I want you to come out there. I want you to follow him. We're going to go, and we're going to go see him. We're going to watch him and see what he's doing. And you know how long they did? They spent three days with him. You've got a family you got a wife and kids. What, what are you doing with the kids? There's no Motel 6s out there. You're sleeping in a remote area. You're not eating. What are you doing out there? Your wife's going, oh, babe, uh, little Johnny needs a snack. You know, he, he needs some uh, Cheez-Its. You got any Cheez-Its on you? Uh, that's exactly what's going on here. Where are you sleeping? Jesus is caring for all these people, but he also recognizes there's a problem. Look at verse 2 and 3. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Let me ask you something. What would keep people hanging around Jesus for three days? I mean, if, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a husband and wife and I have two small children, and if I had some kind of physical need that I wanted Jesus to deal with, wouldn't I go to him and wouldn't I get that need met? And then when I go back home, 
because I need a place to sleep, I need to be, wouldn't you go? In other words, what in the world, why are these people foregoing food because he knows they're hungry? Why are they foregoing food to hang around with Jesus for three days? We can't even make it to church without a snack sometime, right? And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but our lives revolve around noon. You better be shutting it down at noon, because I got to get to the... I got to get to the restaurant over here, and I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just saying, what are we hungry for? What are we hungry for? Matthew chapter 5 or 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I wonder if, over the course of three days with Jesus, he awakened in their hearts and in their souls a spiritual thirst for something else. Beyond healings. You know, is there, are there principles in Scripture where we may see this? Where there's a hunger and a thirst for something else? Do we see that in the Bible? When I thought about this, um, I, my mind went to Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Martha, she's, she's just a busy bee. She's getting the house ready. She's getting all the, she's baking the bread. She's getting, she's getting the house ready. And all of a sudden, she's, she's like, she's upset. She's upset at Mary. What's Mary doing? Mary's just sitting there. She's not doing anything. So Martha goes to Jesus, and she, she says this, will you, tell, will you tell Mary to help? I'm, I'm left all alone here. And Jesus has a, a very incredible response to her. He says this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. You, you remember what she was doing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. What she has done, the choice that she made, will not be taken away from her. In other words, the truth and the reality of who Jesus is and was and what he was doing so burned in her heart and her soul that it was not going to be taken away from her. I wonder if in the period of those three days, what Jesus did is he awakened a spiritual hunger and thirst for not just the miracles, but for who he is and who he was. Listen to what Jesus said to his followers after they found, after the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Jesus went out and he went across the water and they ran after him and they found him. In John chapter, by the way, there's six recordings of the, the feedings. So two are in Matthew, two are in Mark, one in uh, Luke and one in John. And so we have six recordings of the feeding. It, 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 you're wondering if Jesus is trying to get us to learn something here. And so we have a record of John chapter 6. Notice what it says. Truly, very truly, I say to you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs, signs of the Messiah, of what the Messiah would do, Isaiah chapter 3. Not because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and, what, and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered them, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Jesus is continually reminding the disciples who he is, what he's done, and that he wants them to put their absolute faith and trust in him. 
And by the way, there's going to be a huge change at the end of Mark chapter 8 because he's going to tell them they're getting this idea. Yes, you're the Messiah, but what's the Messiah going to do? This Messiah is what? He's going to go and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that you and I might have forgiveness. That's the essence of the understanding that they needed to get. And they hadn't gotten it yet. And what Jesus is continuing to do is to challenge them and remind them of the true nature of who he is and what he's come to do. So they have this great need. Jesus has been with them. He recognizes that there's a problem out there. In verse 4, it says this. Disciples respond to Jesus' statement. But, but, where in this remote, bleh, but where in this remote area, wilderness place, can anyone get enough bread to eat? Are you a little bit surprised that they're asking this question? And this, this is what I mean. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, right? They've seen people do miracles, heal people, sickness, cripple. I mean, how many ways can you heal a crippled person? How many ways can you cast out demons? How, how many ways can you do all this stuff? They've consistently seen Jesus do miracles over and over again. Do you think that every time he does a miracle, oh, wow, they forget? I, I don't, I, I'm wondering if something deeper is going on here, that Jesus is trying to get them to understand something else about the nature and the character of who he is. Is Jesus able to do this in the context of wilderness, remote people, maybe in the context of people who are outside of Judaism, if you will? As I was going through this text, I was reminded of the, of the people in the Exodus. Remember, God brings them out of, of, uh, of Egypt, and they're, they're wandering the book of Acts. They're wandering uh, through the wilderness area. And, and God has already done all of these incredible miracles, right? And they begin to wander in a panic because they don't have water. And what does God do? God creates another miracle and brings water outside of the rock, if you will. And what we have in, in Psalm 78, we actually have in Psalm 78 a reflection on what was going on in the Exodus and the psalmist in Psalm 78 is actually writing to people so that they would not forget the lessons learned in the Exodus. So in Psalm 78, verse 19, notice what the people were saying while they were in the midst of that desert experience. God had given them water, but this is what they ask. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the desert? Can God really feed a million of us in the middle of this remote area. And I wonder if that's kind of what's going on in the mind of the disciples. Is God really going to create a miracle to these people that maybe are outside of Judaism? Maybe they're not really the kind of people that we like to hang out with. I wonder if Jesus is trying to instill in them an understanding about the nature and the character of who he is and who we would come to save and how he would go about doing that. Listen, God is a God of, of miracles. God knows exactly what's going on in your life. He's not surprised about what's going on in your life. And he can help you. If you're, if you're not there, if your needs are not being, God, God can do that. In the book of Jeremiah, it says this, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And some of you may know, what does he say? Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. Yes, for everyone else in this Rome area, but not for Jesus. 
And so what Jesus does in verse five is he prompts their memory by the question he asks. How many loaves do you have? I wonder if in their mind they're going, oh no, another pop quiz. Because this is the same question they asked him during the first feeding. Now, what's interesting about the first feeding is this. They didn't have an answer, remember? They, they said, well, we don't know. And she said, well, go, go out and look and see what food is available. So they went out and they came back. What's interesting here is what? They know. I, it's just kind of curious that they know. Why do they know? Maybe somebody's sitting around going, okay, guys, we've been here three days, and I don't want to be on the short end of the sick again. Go out. You guys go out and find out what kind of food's out there, just in case Jesus asks. We don't know. I have no idea. But what's interesting here is that they already know. They already know what they have available to them. And so I wonder if what Jesus is doing is this. Jesus is trying to get their attention about something deeper than bread and provision. I wonder if what Jesus is trying to do is to remind them and take them back to this Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile. Remember, she's a Gentile. She's outside of Judaism. She's outside of their realm. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They hated each other. Gentiles a Jews would not go into Gentile territory. We know that. The Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, we know that. Why are you even speaking to me? They know that. Go back to the Old Testament. Jonah. What did Jonah want to do? He didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent. He hated them. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. And so I wonder what we're doing is we're seeing God do something creating a miracle for people outside of Israel, outside of Judaism, outside of the Jewish people. What he's going to do, he's going to provide a miracle to Gentiles as a reminder of what God has said that he would do from the Old Testament, that he came to be a savior of all people from all nations. I wonder if that's the tension they're experiencing. Because we know in Matthew's gospel, it says this in chapter Matthew 15, after the account, it says, they, the people, what, they praised the God of Israel. In other words, they had an understanding, maybe a better understanding about who God is and what he had done for them. And maybe that's what Jesus is trying to do to the disciples. I want to awaken you, not only a hunger for who I am, but I want to awaken for you a heart and a passion for people that are not like you. I want to deal with this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles because I'm the only one who has the capability of doing that. No one else can do that. I wonder if they're going to get that picture of who Jesus is embedded in their hearts and their minds. And in verses 6 through 10, we have the contentment of the people. The contentment of the people, it says what? They, they were satisfied, they ate and were satisfied. You know, some of you, whenever I see the word satisfied, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I, my mind always goes to the Rolling Stones. I'm sorry that it does that. I'm, some of you may know, I can't get no what? You can with Jesus. It's Rolling Stones can't. I went back and read the, the lyrics of that. Interesting song. But Jesus comes, offers a miracle. They're satisfied. They, what do they find? They find contentment. Their bellies are full. Their bellies are full. And what's interesting is this, it, it, 
in these verses, 6, 7, 8, 9, there's a miracle. There's, there is a miracle. Um, what Jesus did is he, like the first feeding, he had all of the people sit down on the ground, probably in groups, maybe 50, 75. He handed out the barley loaves to his disciples, and he, he looked up to heaven, and he gave thanks, and he handed them out, and then the people handed them out to all the people. And then evidently someone had some fish, and they did the same thing with the fish. Looked up to heaven, prayed, most likely, and then handed out to all the people. Now think about this. This is barley loaves of bread that were never harvested. They were never grown. The seeds never grew. I mean, I mean it wasn't baked in any of that. None of that happened. This was bread, fish. It wasn't in the Sea of Galilee, wasn't caught, wasn't clean, wasn't cooked. This is a true Genesis chapter 1 miracle that should have blown their socks off. And it should blow our socks off about the nature and the character of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Do you get it? Maybe some, some of you are like, I don't know. Did that really happen? Some of you are skeptical. Look at verse 8. The people ate and were satisfied. They found great contentment in who Jesus is and what he would do for them. So Jesus comes and he cares for the people through all of these miracles. He offers compassion to all of the people, something he felt deep inside. And then he satisfied them by providing for them. There was a sense of contentment to them. So, so what do we do with this passage? I'm going to offer a couple of suggestions. What do we do with it? How do we apply this? What's, what's the understanding? What does God want us to do? But before we do this, I, I, want, to, I want to take you to a poem. All right? I'm not a, I'm not a poet, but I, but I like poetry. This was actually written in the 1870s, and Luke probably knows about this, probably Mariah. It's called The Bleak Midwinter, or it was written sometime in the 1870s by a gal by the name of Christina Rossetti, if I'm saying her name. But it was made into a Christmas carol. And it's a very popular Christmas carol. As a matter of fact, it is one of the most popular Christmas carols that people have talked about. And here are the words. It's about the life of Jesus, specifically about the incarnation and the response. And by the way, this gal lived by herself, never married, and she worked with prostitutes, pointing them in the right direction. And she wrote this, this poem. So I'm going to put it on there. It's called uh, In the Bleak Midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter long ago, our God, heaven cannot hold nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breastful of milk, manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels, many have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But his mother only in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. What does Jesus want from the disciples? And what does Jesus want from us? He wants us to radically trust him in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life. He simply wants our heart to give him all of, of what we should give him 
as our Lord and Savior. He wants our heart to fall down and worship him for who he is and what he's done. That's how simple it is. And so Jesus comes and he does all of these wonderful miracles. And and he satisfies the people by providing food for them so that they would have a, a, a deeper understanding of who he is and what he can do in their life. When you go back and look at the Gospels, there was a reason that the Gospel writers wrote so that our lives would be very, very different when we embrace the nature and the character of Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, and notice what John writes, how Jesus should change our lives. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Is that your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done? All right, I want to suggest a a couple of applications, a couple of understandings, if you will, things for us to take home as we go um, our, our ways today. Four things that I want to just point out to you. The first one is this, the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. It says this, I have compassion for these people. Almost every other gospel talks about the compassion of Jesus as something that they saw. They saw Jesus' compassion. What does Jesus do here? He gives us insight into what what is going on inside of him. I have compassion. A heartfelt movement deep inside of him for the needs of the people. We are getting a picture of the heart of Jesus for people. I have compassion on them. Man, they've been moving for three days. And I got to take care of them. So what am I going to do? I'm going to create a miracle. I have incredible compassion for people. This is deeply personal for him. Let me just remind you of something. Our God is a compassionate God. He is a compassionate God who loves his children. Second Corinthians says this, that God is the father of, of compassion and the God of all comfort. The father of compassion and God of all comfort who comes to offer us comfort in any of the difficulties and challenges we might go through. This is our God. And if this is our God, then we should be people who reflect his nature and his character. We need to be compassionate to people who are not like us. That's the context of this. I think it's the context of this, is these people were not like the Jewish people. They're pagans. They're Gentiles. They're outside of the covenant. We sing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Can I just give you the first line? You know it. You may sing it. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not what? Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. God's compassions won't fail. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is a compassionate God. And because he is compassionate, he's invited us to be compassionate to my neighbor, to the person that's really, to my wife, to my family, to live out this idea that I have the, a feeling of, of deep down inside of me that I need to reach out and, and feel gut-wrenching uh, pain and suffering when I see that in other people. And I need to be empathetic to their needs. 
we learn about God's compassion. Second thing is this. I think what we see is Jesus' mission to outsiders. My heart is broken about what I see going on in our world. I, I just, I see what's going on in Jerusalem. I see what's going on in the Gaza Strip. I, I, and, and my heart is broken of the pain and the suffering. And I believe in my understanding of scripture, I believe that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. I don't think the church is replaced. I, I believe that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And our responsibility, the psalmist said, our responsibility is to pray for the people of Israel. And we need to do that. I'm not a, I, I'm not a bright guy. And I don't know all the eschatology, the end times. So I, 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 I know what I'm supposed to do. But I do know this, that peace is only going to come through a person. Peace can only come through Jesus. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God, Jesus went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And when you look at the book of Galatians and you look at the book of Ephesians, we are reminded that peace will come from Jesus. And Abraham even talked about it. In the book of Galatians, it says this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, So in Christ, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have enclosed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, what? Then you are what? You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that all of those who put their faith and trust in him, that he would be the father of many nations. And so what we are ultimately looking to in the midst of the chaos in life, from my understanding, is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the what? The prince of peace. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, that he is the one ultimately that's coming to come and bring peace to us. Let me just read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. It says this, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God, what? Through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to God. I remind us that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for peace. We pray for all peace, that they might find that peace where? In the person of Jesus Christ who went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And that is true for the Jew and that is true for the Gentile. There's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved.
So in the brokenness of our heart, maybe what we're seeing in this passage is we're seeing the tension of the disciples going out and proclaiming a message that maybe they don't want to proclaim to Gentiles. And what Jesus reminds us, this is a message from me about people who are separated from a holy God. Compassion, mission, I I won't mention this. What you can do is, is you can deduce from this that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He came to feed us because he is ultimately the bread of life. And the last thing, and then we're done, is this. I don't know where you find yourself today, but we are called to trust Jesus. This is a, an opportunity, a unique opportunity, in light of what Jesus has done in this miracle, to find satisfaction and contentment in what Jesus would provide for us. No matter where you might find yourself today, what's the issue that you're struggling with, with Jesus? You know, where's the lack? What is it that you need? Jesus says that I can bring contentment. I can bring satisfaction because of who he is and what he's done. Father, I thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Father, your word says that when we were enemies of God, you came and you reconciled us to yourself. And Father, I thank you that when we were at times running from you, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, brought us under conviction revealed to us the unique person of Jesus in your word and invited us to simply put our faith and trust in you. And Father, we trust you today for who you are and what you've done. Father, this morning, once again, we simply give you our hearts, our minds, and our souls that we might pursue you in every aspect of our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.